We're going to start today with a bit of audience participation, because I've got a question for you. We're going to hear in a moment a passage from the heart of today's work, Sibelius's Seventh Symphony, played by the BBC Philharmonic, conducted by Yasuo Shinazaki. And I have a question for you, which is this. How fast is this music? <laughs> fast did you think that music was? Now, don't worry, there's no right or wrong answer to this question, so you can't make a fool of yourself, but put your hands up if you describe that music as predominantly fast. Nobody thinks that music was fast. Anybody thought it was predominantly slow? Two people here, three people. And who would, four? Ah, now we're seeing some results. Uh, who would say it's more complicated than that? <laughs> Ah, yes. Um, I think most of you agree with me then on that one. Yes, I, I think that's a fascinating passage. And in some ways, it's incredibly typical of the nature of Sibelius's mastery in this late masterpiece. In fact, it's his last published symphony. The passage we've heard began like a Beethoven scherzo, really fast, the strings tearing along with the woodwind answering them there. And then in the middle, there's that passage where we hear the strings playing this figure, which still seems to be going pretty fast. But in the background, there's this figure, led by the trombone, which is clearly moving much slower than the strings we've just heard. 
Well, that really is slow music. I think we'd all agree with that, except perhaps for that little flicker of colour up on the two piccolos at the top there, moving perhaps just a little faster than what the brass are playing in the background. Well, I was absolutely thrilled when I saw Sibelius's sketches for this symphony for the first time and discovered some of the comments that he scribbled in the margins and underneath some of the ideas, because they are fascinating. Sibelius's diaries and sketchbooks are a treasure house, and I hope someday somebody will publish them for what they tell you about what was in his mind when he created these passages. And underneath that passage, he wrote, The Moon Seen Through Storm Clouds. And I suddenly thought, yes, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's rather a fine metaphor. If you can imagine, we had the strings, like the clouds scudding along very rapidly in front of the face of the moon, while the disk of the moon itself hangs immobile in the sky. Or maybe the piccolo figure, which is just a bit faster, but not as fast as the strings, is like a bird call up in the stormy sky. But it's a wonderful illustration of what Sibelius does so uniquely in his music, I think. Almost nobody does it quite as masterfully as he is, which is sometimes to create the impression that you have music that's moving at several different speeds at the same time. You may have noticed that our conductor, Yasuo Shinazaki, was keeping a fairly steady beat all the way through that passage, more or less all the way through. And yet the impression we get of how fast that music is going, it keeps changing all the time. It's fluid. It's amazing how often Sibelius uses these kind of nature images to explain what it is he's doing in his music. I think it wouldn't be too far-fetched to describe him as the supreme organic composer, if that doesn't make him sound like a bag of compost. Because there is something about Sibelius's music, it's not just the way that it sometimes seeks to evoke sounds from nature, the rustling of of trees, of the wind in the trees, maybe on the strings, or bird calls on the woodwind, he actually seems to have an extraordinary insight into the processes of nature, the way that music, like nature, can grow. And I've got another comment from his diaries, which he wrote down here, which I think is very helpful. He says, I would like to compare the symphony to a river. It's born from various rivulets which seek each other, and in this way the river proceeds wide and powerful towards the sea. The musical thoughts, the motives that are, are the things which must create the form and stabilize the path. The river is a very interesting metaphor, I think, for that passage as well in another sense, because I think all of us know the difference between a stream and a river. But you know, you can't exactly say that there's a specific point at which a stream ceases to be a stream and becomes a river. There isn't a line you can draw where it's one thing on one side and another on the other, any more than you can say that there's a point where a trunk of a tree stops becoming a trunk of a tree and becomes the branches instead. That's the kind of natural, organic thinking that I think that's so typical of Sibelius. Let's go to the opening of the symphony and see how this works in more detail. Now, what Sibelius presents us with at the beginning of the symphony is an incredibly simple idea. It's just an ascending scale. There's a little, little flick from the timpani, and then we hear the scale rising on the strings very slowly. We'll hear it, but with one important element missing. Played like that, it does sound very simple, doesn't it? Just a rising scale and that, that surprise jab at the end on a change of harmony. But there's one extra element. The double basses play the same rising scale as the rest of the strings, but they do so half a beat later. 
a syncopation. And the effect is extraordinary. It adds an extraordinary weight to this idea. It slows it down, as though the music is dragging as it tries to push itself forward. See what I mean? Now, you try and keep that crotchet beat in your head as we listen to the next passage. Or if you like, try following our conductor. He'll give you a pretty clear signal of what the beat is. But listen to the music. And the way the music seems to float completely free of any kind of beat. The beat is there to help the players, but it's not the impression that we as listeners get listening to the music. <laughs> Now that really is like a river, isn't it? If you imagine standing on a bridge and looking down at a river, the music isn't all flowing at the same speed, like a conveyor belt. You find there's a passage where the current's moving very fast, another part where it's moving a little bit slower, and then you get eddies where it seems to be moving backwards and forwards against itself. Sibelius has created the effect in that music, even though it's very precisely notated, of music that ebbs and flows, where the time is incredibly fluid and supple and keeps changing. Now, in its way, that's just as revolutionary as the kind of rhythmic innovations that Stravinsky makes in The Rite of Spring, but here with a very different result. But there's another important organic image, I think, here that can help us inside Sibelius's thinking. When the flutes and bassoons entered at the end of that passage, there was one tiny phrase that was very important, which in, in the future is going to be like a seed in the development of this symphony. Let's ask the first flute, please, to play this phrase very slowly. D, C, D, E. A very distinct shape, a very simple four-note pattern, like a turn. We could almost miss it in its original context, but Sibelius makes sure we don't, because a couple of bars later, the woodwind make a little bit more of this phrase. It helps lodge it in the memory for us. Well, not long after that, we arrive at what most books will call the first theme of Sibelius's Seventh Symphony. It's a magnificent slow trombone theme. It's the theme, in fact, we heard the trombone picking out in the beginning of this program, the theme that Sibelius associated with the moon that was seen through the storm clouds. Only this time, it's a very different kind of sky that we see the moon in. Now, this theme itself is a flowering, a development, a growth of that seed the flute played just a moment or two ago. If you take those four notes, da, da, dee, da, and you add just two extra notes in the middle, squeeze them in, shoehorn them in with a little dotted rhythm, you get this new and much more distinct figure, but which is still clearly derived from that seed we heard just a moment or two ago. 
Special thanks there to our trombonist, Robert Holliday. Um, trombonists don't often get big tunes in orchestral music. In fact, they're rather special, cherished moments. But in Sibelius' seventh, the trombone is in many ways the star player of the symphony because that magnificent trombone theme, which we'll hear in its entirety in a moment, recurs twice. It's, it's the backbone of this symphony and what makes its structure very easy to identify. But what happens, in a way, for the preparation of that theme is striking too, because it doesn't arrive cleanly in the way that, say, a classical composer would present a theme and say, here's the main theme. It arrives as the culmination of a long build-up, which starts on the violas and the cellos, so that it emerges out of a long, wonderful, long crescendo. So, in a way, it's at the same time a new departure. It's, here's the theme, now we begin the development. But it's also a culmination climax of the build-up we've heard before. For the full effect, I think we really ought to hear the whole passage.
This music we've heard so far at this stage in the symphony is all marked adagio, so we ought to say uncontrovertibly, basically, the pace is slow. But gradually, things begin to change, because this symphony is in one movement. It's not like your typical classical symphony that has a fast movement and a slow movement, and then perhaps another fast movement. This symphony is in one movement in which all those elements are combined in Sibelius's unique way. We're just about reaching the point at which the music begins to change from the original slow pace we've heard. And interestingly enough, it's a reminder of that seed, that four-note turn figure that we first heard on the flute, which begins to initiate the change from slow to slightly faster music. Yes, you can feel the music starting to push forward in that passage, as though it's trying to move out of this adagio, slow pace that it started in. But now comes an extraordinary, a kind of melting passage, in which, again, that sense of the beat dissolves. You can see what our conductor is doing, uh, but the music itself gives a very different kind of effect, as though it's a state of complete flux. You'll notice that there are different groups of instruments playing little figures, almost as though they're regardless of each other. It's the kind of sound you sometimes hear when an orchestra's practicing before a concert. The clarinets, the bassoons, even the timpani play the same figure, but it's as though they're playing it at their own speed or in their own time, regardless of the beat of the music. Now we can sense that the music's moving a little bit faster. But again, if I were to replay that passage and ask you to say, where exactly did the music start to move faster, it would be very difficult to say. You know at one point that you're in a slow movement. A little later, you know that you're not. But exactly where it is that it's happening is much more difficult to say. So let's see what Sibelius does next before the music really starts to move much faster. Indeed, the movement seems to have changed before long until it really is in a kind of Beethovenian scherzo, much, much faster. This is how Sibelius gets there.
Wagner, who was very fond of making polished aphorisms, I think nowadays we'd say sound bites, once said that composition was the art of transition, the art of progressing from one state into another, in which case I think that has to be one of the most supremely artful moments in Western music, because again, Sibelius has taken us from one kind of musical world to another, but we don't know exactly where the join happens. It's beautiful, it's a state of flux, fluidity, one thing becoming another. Well, that fast scherzo continues at a tremendous space for a while, and then we hear the passage that we heard at the beginning of the program, with that sense of the different layers of speeds, with the strings moving fast, the trombone slowly, the piccolo bird calls perhaps a little bit faster. And then at the end of that section, we come out of this in a new kind of tempo, fast perhaps, but not as fast as the music was before. And again, that little seed that we heard on the flute, that four-note figure, is the figure that initiates the sense of change. You remember, da-dum, da-dum. If you listen carefully, you'll hear how that's the basis of the new dance figure that appears on the woodwind and the strings. And you'll hear it growing all the time, just as a seed puts out shoots and grows in new directions. So we've arrived in what seems to be a new movement or a section, although I think it should be pretty clear by now that Sibelius doesn't really do sections in the classical sense at all. We arrive in a new place and the music moves on from that and all the time there's a sense of change. In fact, this section that we just arrived in, this new Allegro Moderato, gets faster and faster steadily. And then there's a little pause and suddenly it's moving faster still. And here we, again we may be wondering quite where we are in this symphony, because is this a new section or a new kind of movement, or have we somehow or other found ourselves back in that scherzo section that we heard before? The music is now moving at a pretty fast, rapid rate. <laughs> begins another of those extraordinary art of transition passages. The river is about to change again. But again, it's not possible to say exactly where the change happens, because you'll notice that there's a pounding driving rhythm on the strings, undenied by the timps. But the horns begin rising in slow scales, just like the scales that began the symphony. And it adds weight to the music, just as it did then. The tempo begins to drop a bit, and then suddenly, through the driving 
playing strings in the timpani, we hear the trombone again, the third appearance of that magnificent trombone theme, the moon shining forth with its old glory. But the driving strings continue, so again we get this impression of two different speeds going on at the same time, the slow movement of the moon across the sky in the background and the strings scudding forward in the foreground. on the back of my neck to subside for a second after that. Now there comes another big change. This is basically the same music that we heard when we heard the trombone right at the beginning of the symphony. But now the strings are adding a new kind of heavy weight to the music. First of all, on the violins and violas, we get this syncopated figure which is tugging against the beat. And the other new element is this deep subterranean growl from the cellos and the basses and the bassoons. Really sounds as if it's coming up from underneath the soil. Again, one of these extraordinary nature images you just can't get away with in Sibelius. We keep hearing that growling sound again, pulling against the beat, just as the violins and violas are doing at the top. So let's hear the holes of this next section and the massive build up to the climax, when you can hear the music as it were the theme trying to struggle free from these heavy weights. And finally it does with a tremendous thrilling whoop from the four horns in the background, a typically Sibelian sound. <laughs>
near the end of the symphony now. Amazingly, this last symphony of Sibelius's manages to say all it has to say in just over 20 minutes in one movement. That's concentration for you. And what happens in the last stages of the symphony is that the organic growth process that we've heard so much of in the earlier stages of the symphony now seems to go into reverse, as though it's going into a kind of decline. Through intense, straining high strings, we hear the first phrase of that great trombone theme, now on the horns. And now the woodwind quietly remind us of that little four-note seed, the turning figure, from which the trombone theme grew. This is gently winding down. And finally, there's another miracle of that art of transition, only now the focus is on orchestral color. The seed, you remember, da-dum, da-dum, is reduced still further to just its first two notes, dee-dum, and they're stretched out over three very long, slow bars. It starts with just the D on the pizzicato violins, from which emerge low flutes, then oboes, then cellos an octave lower, and then violins bowed, and then the final C is on the horns. But you don't hear the color changing moment by moment. It's as though it changes gradually. One color melts into another, and then into another, as though it's one light constantly changing color by a kind of organic process. <laughs> But there's just one last little resolution, which again derives from the seed we heard right near the beginning of the symphony. You remember that four-note figure, dee-dum-da-dum? Well, Sibelius changes that turn ever so slightly so that it goes da-dum-dee-dum, so that it comes to rest on the home key, on the tonic, on the tonic note. But it is the most marvelous effect as the final B-C arises out of the orchestral texture on the strings against these craggy chords on the trombones, the trumpets, and the timpani.
And now here is Sibelius's Symphony No. 7 in C major. The BBC Philharmonic Associate Leader Andrew Orton, conducted by Yasuo Shinazaki. <laughs> 